Hello, and welcome to the Third Age Design Podcast, and a particular welcome to our listeners in the United States. I'm Laurie Pinkerton Rowley, and over the next half hour, I'll be speaking with John Walker, Development Design Director of Sunrise Senior Living, which owns and operates over 320 locations across the U.S. and 25 and growing in the United Kingdom, plus sites in Canada. What design parameters can we learn from each side of the Atlantic, and where are the contrasts? In this month's Innovation Spotlight and Hats Off feature, we're staying with our U.S. theme. Now, we could have launched this one on July the 4th, but you don't like to really upset the crown here in Britain. They hate losing the colonies, you know. Anyway, we'll be reviewing some of the latest American initiatives later in the podcast. Wishing a sense of dignity and respect for seniors is why many of us start working in this area, and top social media influencer Brian H. McGill, he has over a billion followers, I think that does constitute a top influencer. Anyway, he's quoted as saying, one of the most sincere forms of respect is actually listening to what one another has to say. And that not only applies to listening to what seniors really want in their environments, but also between professionals such as designers, architects, owners, operators, and academics. And thirdage.design was created to share knowledge internationally to improve senior environments. Go to our website, and join the free interactive community, and you'll have access to the forum discussions. You can share your expertise and reach potential new clients by submitting a blog post. And don't forget to check out the international calendar of events. Plus, on the podcast page, you'll find links and other information related to each podcast, so you can explore each topic in greater details if that floats your boat. You'll find all of that at thirdage.design. Sponsored by Oscar, a world leader in pressure care and specialist furnishings. Okay, let's get started. My guest today has specialized in the design of care homes for the past 30 years. For the past 10, as lead development design director at Sunrise Senior Living. It's John Walker, and he served as CapEx Director, Operations, Contract Coordinator, and Consultant. And in true third-age design style, over the years he's worked in the U.S., Canada, the United Kingdom, and Germany. He received his Bachelor of Architecture in the Commonwealth of Virginia and went on to study design specifically for people with Alzheimer's and AIDS at Harvard University. Like me, he's a citizen of both the U.S. and the U.K., and we're going to be comparing and contrasting design approaches in both countries in our discussion today. John, welcome, and it's so nice to speak to you again. Thank you. Great to talk to you. It's been so long. It, it really has. So we, we originally, just for listeners, we originally met on a project here in the U.K., and, um, and now you're back in the U.S., and really have quite a unique understanding, I think, of design on both sides of the Atlantic that most people really don't have. And I'm going to get to general design in a moment, but I'd like to start with just asking you what you think the changes in care environments have been or are likely to be specifically in the U.S., in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. We've covered on this program what some of the changes have been in the UK, but really interested in the US perspective. Uh, well, it's interesting. Right now, we don't have all the data. So one of the biggest concerns was uh, dining was really a difficult part of operations. So residents were 
confined to their rooms. We couldn't have them in a shared dining room. Um, you can't social distance on the elevator, so getting them on a three-story building to get them to come downstairs to eat, it, it was would have taken a long time just in general to get people to the dining room. I don't foresee that we're going to add more elevators and increase our dining room sizes for another 100-year pandemic, but that's one of the biggest hurdles that we had to deal with. But I don't think that's going to affect future design. The future design that I see that we're already studying is the ability to continue to care for seniors. So we don't want family members to come into our building and potentially bring a virus in, but they still need to come in to meet and to decide if their mother might want to live there or their father. So what we're starting to do is looking at our our, our, our marketing uh, meeting rooms and moving those to the exterior of the building where they have a, a separate entrance so that someone can come to the community and experience and, and test it without having to interact with the community itself. So those meeting rooms, would, would those meeting rooms be also used by, by staff and for other reasons outside of that? Of course, yes, yes. They're, they're, they're general purpose, but they're primarily used to bring a family member in and sit down and talk about the, the needs of their, you know, their, their loved one, and, and they can feel comfortable coming into a space that they know that they might not harm someone, and our residents can feel safe because there's not someone coming in from the outside that potentially could kill them. I mean, that's as far as COVID, that's one of the big things that was so difficult for this market was that people have to go home and come back to work. Yeah, yeah. And staff as well. How Were there any uh, any changes made in, in relation to, to handling staff and spaces uh, that might go into the future as it related to staff? Not so much. I don't think so much the, the built form as much as the technology. We have a lot of uh, checkpoints, uh, different protocols on how staff come and leave, go from the building. So they, they're not as free to come and go as they please in, in the sense that they have to be checked in. You know, before vaccinations became prominent, there's temperature checks and those things have to be in logs and, you know, the paperwork in a care home to make sure the safety of the residents is extensive and yeah. adding those protocols. So it's more of an IT study than it is built form. Um, but like I said, all of these things haven't quite tested themselves out yet. We're still getting feedback from operation teams on what they've had to do. It, it, was, it was an easy step to start adding in IT clauses to, to, to locate certain pieces of equipment. And that is something that's changed the built form. But as far as, let's say, the staff or the team member lounge where it might be located and maybe have exterior access or maybe have a, uh, you know, a disinfection room, whatever. I know there's a make-believe things that we don't know that we need or might want to incorporate in the future. Yeah, I mean, we're working on one project here where we're looking at adding hand basins in corridors but in places that are hidden so it doesn't look like a, you know, a medical facility per se, um, but as a way of getting around um, some things having to do with just, you know, sanitation, um, MRSA, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because in uh, one of our jurisdictions, they require us to have drinking fountains in all the floors and the corridors. And these are things that we just will not use, especially in a, a pandemic situation. No, of course. Yeah. So we did the same thing. We're, we're, we're including them in the built form, but we're having them 
in a closet. So you open up a door and there's a set of water fountains. <laughs> <laughs> so that the residents don't have to deal with looking at these things that will never be used. Yes. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting solution, um, and it would appear to work. I mean, as... Because uh, the whole approach of what we're doing at Third Age Design is to share information internationally, I'm, now that you're back in the U.S., is there anything you can think of where you look back and, and think, oh, that's something I specifically learned from working in the U.K.? Interesting question. I would say one of the things that became clear is that the care for seniors is very universal between the UK and the US, meaning when we did our initial designs in the UK, we were told quite dramatically that they have to have bathtubs. Our, our you know, English people take baths, we don't take showers. It, it was pushed really hard as, a, as something that we incorporated into all of the design. And I think before I came back to the US in 2011, I had ripped out my last tub and put it in the shower <laughs> because Seniors can't get in them um, yeah. that are frail. They need assistance as part of what we provide. So that that was a big one, um, that, that the, the care of seniors is so universal. So, for instance, memory care and, and the, the, the colors that they can see, all of those things, doesn't matter if you're in the U.S. or the U.K., that they that it's similar. And it wasn't until working in the U.K. and, and going through the process that a lot of those things that is very interesting and and kind of uh, feels very positive as well um, uh, that those things have aligned themselves. I mean, one thing I'm also wondering whether this is the same or different is there's a lot of talk here, um, particularly in the past, I would say, 18 months uh, about what is the perfect size for a care facility. And I know that every owner and operator or developer looks at this at the beginning of their project anyway, but there seem to be some general kind of trends. So the CDC um, in the U.S., um, which everyone will be very familiar with as they've been commenting on, on COVID so much, they say that most facilities in the U.S. that are publicly owned have an average of 61 beds, publicly owned, private ones they say average 24 and some of the nonprofits around 39 so there's quite a quite a range there between sort of 24 and 61 uh bed units people here seem to be talking more and more about family settings almost like pods um pointing out that if you have enough of them operational costs you can still get to work out but then from the standpoint of residents and their family, is there enough interaction that way? I mean, it's a very complicated uh, kind of puzzle. And with your background, I was just wondering if you, if you can make any comments about what, what is the perfect size for a care home or what direction you think it's going to go in the United States. I think right now, based on my work experience, is that sites, profitable sites, are difficult. If, if, if they were easy, everyone would already have developed them. You know, that's sort of the Good standard <laughs> comment. And so, so it's such an important business decision on how big the building is, because if you get the only good site in a location, in a city, if you have it too small, 
you can't afford the fact that you spent so much money for that site. <clears throat> I, I think the, the big difference is once you get into the building and what how that breaks down and the, you know the projects that we worked on together there was there was a mix of memory care residents and and assisted living or you know residents that only needed a, a help with medicine and, and bathing but didn't have any severe uh, dementia and so most of the buildings that I'm working on are roughly 100, 100 to 110 residents probably but. That's not all together. We have a na- two neighborhoods for memory care. We try to keep those at least limited at 20 to 25 residents. We don't like to go much bigger than that because once you have too many memory care residents in a neighborhood, you, you have competing personalities and it can really cause stress. And that's something we try to avoid. So we reduce that down. So this, this 100 unit building that I just described, has two neighborhoods of 25 memory care, but those two neighborhoods are separate and isolated on their own. So there's 50 of the 100, and then the other 50 are, are assisted living over two floors that, again, they will come down and dine together and activities are, are split. But so, like I said, it, if, if I was doing an assisted living only, I would say that the sweet spot is about 50 to 60. If I was doing a memory care only, it would all depend on how many neighborhoods. Right. So I could do up to 120, but it would be multiple smaller groups as opposed to one large group. Right. And then presumably if you're doing, you know, multiples or even if you're doing two, if you're having memory clashes of some sort, you have the ability to shift things around. Correct. Um, if you need to, which is kind of a plan B. Yes. And, and the design always has the decentralization built into it. Not, not, not to the degree of, um, the, the work that we did in the UK together where, you know, it was exaggerated where people dined in the corridors outside their room, but you know, the, not having one large dining room for even all those 25 residents but to have it to where maybe there's a central servery with dining on each side so you could have residents quite remote that, that they might need to be. Um, even though it is still a small family, there's still a separation and decentralization built into it. Mm-hmm. In terms of you mentioned um, assisted living uh, in the in your one example, in terms of sunrise senior living, what would you say is the is the definition difference between assisted living and independent living within one of your facilities? Um, independent living is not big in our portfolio, at least not in my design work, and I would be speaking out of turn to try to give you a great definition of it only because I don't spend a lot of time with that product that we have. But it, it, it would be probably the 65 to 85-year-old, um, still driving probably, just want a place that they can, you know, have meals prepared for them, uh, have the protection of knowing that there's going to be some staff, because most of our independent living communities are joined at the hip with an assisted living community. So there's two buildings that are sort of linked, separate entrances, but those residents and the independent know that the assisted living is there, so if they were to need something that they, they, they feel protected. But it, the, the dumbed-down answer is the 65 to 85 is independent living that want some safety, and then the assisted living is the 85 and older that needs some help with activities of daily living. So 
that are going to need to help with their medicines, they're going to need help bathing, um, you name it. That's right, but not to a level where they required residential care and that, that those sorts of facilities per se. at um, differences between the U.S. and and the U.K. You talked. You you said that the care is this is the same. The needs are the same. Are there any major differences in the architecture and design of these facilities between the two countries? And what would you say those major differences are, if there are any? I think uh, the exterior. UK projects, there you know, there's a lot to be said with the, the building materials and and where they're located and how those are laid out. Um, on the interior side, there's not a huge difference with my work because I was with a company that was taking a product from the US to the UK and they wanted it to be right. successful in the same manner. Now our work together. I would say it's a dramatically different building in, on the interiors, mostly because I was working with you, which is a different group than the interior designer that Sunrise is using. But also sort of the concept of the owner. They, they had a different vision of what they wanted, and it, it did affect and make it. It was different. I, I, I don't want to say that the UK has a more stark look, because that's not fair. We... The U.S. started with a very Victorian pastiche, Victorian interiors, which we don't do yes. any longer. We're now doing a much more simplified and, and conservative, elegant sort of look, which ties a little bit more into what I, I, I saw in the U.K. Um, but I think one of the biggest differences between the two that I, from my personal experience, was the selections of things and, and the quality, not the quality, that's not fair either, the, um, the design options. The U.S. just has so much more options, like lighting, for instance. Mm. The light fixtures that we have to choose from the U.S. is just so broad. The U.K. Yes. Was, was very limited and, and also the concern with, you know, buying light fixtures that five years, I'm going to need to replace them possibly, or are they still going to be around in five years? And I didn't have that confidence where in the U.S. there's Yeah, the manufacturing base is huge. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's probably the biggest. But as far as what wall covering you might use versus what we might use, I, I think they're quite the same, and it's all designer-dependent. Uh, but you're going to get to choose from 1,000 versus 100, and that's why it's just a broader selection. This is why it's always worth going to High Point Market. Um, and just seeing what you know what's coming out into the marketplace, and I don't get paid by High Point Market to mention that, but um, it, it's quite an extraordinary thing if you've, if you or any of the listeners have have never been. Um, in terms of the aesthetics, uh, back when I was living in the U.S., um, I won't tell you how many years ago that was. Uh, the color palettes tended to be very jewel tone. 
Uh, when I go back to visit my relatives, the color palettes tend to be very jewel tone. Now that may just be my relatives. Do you notice a difference in color palettes between the two countries? From my experience, the, the U.S. was focused, and this is going back to the 90s, let's say. I think things are leveling out, and all of my answers are always difficult because I have been with this company for so long that the changes and trends that happen, I see. So, and they happen on both the U.S. and the U.K. But yes, of course, you see it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I think there was a lot of gold and that sort of light bright in the U.S. Whereas in the U.K., it was a little bit blander, or mm-hmm. I don't want to say what's the, what that paint is, the magnolia paint. That that was. Most of the communities had a very simple and less, well, it goes back to that piece Victorian and the, the, the tie into that. Right, yeah. They, it, they're, they're slightly, I, I, uh, I don't want to, in my experience, having seen some of that in the, in the before the refurbs in um, Sunrise, they were slightly sweeter uh, color palettes and... Uh, more highly accessorized. Yes, that, that's, a, that's a great point. So, for instance, on all the walls, we would have the, you know, the gold plate, you know, florets on the wall with the, the, the hanging plants, and a lot of that became simplified. The, the, the frames, the artwork frames would be gold, gilded gold, and now they're simple, clean black lines, and the actual yeah. artwork itself Yes. Instead of having a, a you know smiling child, it, it's an abstract, not yeah. quite Picasso abstract, but something that lets you reflect and think about what it might be as opposed to be, being given what it is. Are there also changes, um, John, between the facilities that one expects in a building in the U.S. versus one in the U.K.? So you know here cinema rooms usually get used to store hoists most of the time. Um, uh, you know, do they, do they have and use cinema rooms in the U S uh, is, is, is physio a, a really major part of every offering? I mean, we have one client here that we were discussing having a whiskey bar with. I, I just am interested in what sort of differences you, you, you have seen uh, even in, just within Sunrise, as to requirements in different countries. Yeah, we—that's one of those very specific to the UK and the US, where uh, the pub, for instance, in the UK, we—that's we, a space, even if it's just the image or essence of a pub. So it's a little rollout bar that tucks into the corner, but they can be pulled out during you know pub time, and it gives the residents just that feeling of a place to go have a drink, whatever it may be. That, that's something that just doesn't really exist in the U.S. There, there might be a community here and there that has a little bar set up. I, I don't, I've not seen it myself, but where it's quite prevalent in the U.K., um, you, you mentioned physio. That's really new for the U.S. and something that we're pushing hard. And so all of our new communities were incorporating physical therapy spaces um, and exercise rooms as part so that's very U.S. centric. Mm-hmm. 
country at this stage. Um, the other thing that we're that we have a couple communities where we're starting to introduce commercial spaces within our buildings. So mm. we have, for instance, a cafe designed into a building that public have you know access, but so do our residents. It's very early stages, so not quite sure how that's going to grow or or not. But we it is being tested. It was it was not a choice that we decided that we we wanted to go down that road. It was a, a planning requirement, but at the same time, that planning requirement opened up some doors and ideas that we think could be successful. And I, the the biggest one that we try to push for anywhere we can is the intergenerational crossover. Mm, in what uh, way? We project that's be, well, we have one project that's being built on the same grounds as a, as a, as a, a child care center, and we actually put a whole design space that opens up to a outdoor patio so the residents can come down, be indoors or outdoors, and the children can come over and, and do activities, and they can do activities together, and that crossover is really critical for the residents they, they going from children to the, the our, our residents is just really a great thing to see so we we push hard for that but it's not always easy because the site and the location so wherever we can we try to do yeah, that. that potentially a win-win for everybody including the children as well um not to not to have sort of older people set aside as it were and and be able to to see them also um, do you, in terms of what you're working on, we've had a couple of projects um, up in the north, actually, where the bistro is is specifically set up to open to the community uh, because of adding interest to residents and to make it more interactive to the overall community. Um, do you think you're, there are security issues uh, as as it relates to that, that are of any concern to you as you're working on that project? 100%. And in fact, that's one of the things that we're dealing with. That's the most difficult part of the integration of this space is that we have our desires of, and ways to control the crossover. But the fire marshal has <laughs> his own thought on that. Yeah. And they don't necessarily go hand in hand. So we're, we think we have a solution and we think we have it sorted. Um, fortunately, that our communities have a 24-hour concierge who's located at the front door, that smiling face that's always there when anyone comes to the community. And we've decided to wear that they have an eye on the, the, the cafe, um, not to run it, but to be able to sort of monitor it. And so there, there, there are other levels of security that just the staff provide. Well, you've just mentioned something that, that I was not aware of in terms of this sort of a, a true concierge greeting you. What, what would you say are other key differentiators between Sunrise Property and other service providers? Um, let's stick with the U.S. in the U.S. specifically. I think one of the biggest is other companies that provide care tend to design their entries more like a hospital setting versus a more hotel setting. And well, that's not even fair either. Um, Sunrise has always been uh, 
pushing hard to make sure that when you come into our community, it's a home. It's nothing but a home. So it's like walking into your house. And you don't have a, a person behind a desk with a sliding window to check you in at a house. So, right. free, you know, freestanding desk with the person sitting there. You know, we, we, we obviously have the equipment needs and the, the things that they have to have to be able to do their job. But a lot of the competitors base it on more on a medical model than a, on a residential model. That's, that's the way I'll put it. I have seen that. And you see the, you see the, you know, the box files or, or, you know, ring binders behind them. And it does feel like you're being being checked in. I have I have seen that and and wondered, of the ones I've seen, how many were like that. And um, so that's a really really interesting, interesting comment. Just to kind of uh, sum up, for any any student listeners who think they want they'd like to really go into this specific area of design and architecture, um, in either the U.S. or the U.K. Do you have any Do you have any tips? Um, I would say volunteer. At Sunrise, we have a program where you can go work in a community. Um, you can go work for a week. You can work for a day. You can be a cook. You can be a server. You could be a cleaner. You can shadow the ED. You can shadow the head of sales. Uh, and not only is it a rewarding thing to go and participate and to help care for seniors, which is a great feeling just on its own right, but you can learn so much about what their needs are. Yeah, I was fortunate to have my grandmother live in a sunrise for five years. And during those five years, she lived throughout the building. And I, I could take so much of that to guide my design thinking. Um, unless you see how the environment's used, it's so difficult to try and design intelligently. You, you, you can't know what they need mm-hmm. if you don't see how things are being used or not being used to go to your <laughs> cinema room That's- comment. <laughs> Yeah, assisted baths get the same thing. They, they just seem they seem to proliferate um, hoists. Yeah, I, I, you know that's something that I did. I have noticed throughout my career is that the management of a community is so key. If you don't have a manager that understands, well, it can be the financial benefit of it. You know, if, you, if not if, if they have to pay to have a bath and you give people more baths and they pay for them, you make more money. That's the financial side. So it's sort of taking a more global look at the offering altogether and how you're marketing it and how you're staffing it and the whole thing. It's a very, I love the sector. I think it's a really fascinating one. Obviously you do as well, or you wouldn't have been doing this for 30 years. Um, I I really appreciate uh, your insights. I've learned uh, quite a number of things in the conversation. So uh, thank you so much for your time, John. Thank you very much.
I'm so happy that our focus today brings us to the land of my birth, the United States of America. Actually, I've now lived longer in the UK, but I do maintain my accent, my passport, and the requirement to pay taxes to the Internal Revenue Service each and every year. <laughs> anyway, the US is famous for, among other things, Hollywood hot dogs, Muhammad Ali, Marilyn Monroe, and Silicon Valley. Um, to tell you the truth, when I was writing the script, it came out as Silicon Valley, but I think that's probably another story entirely. Anyway, we like here on Third Age Design to discuss and represent topics from many different points of view. Thus, our hats off tribute this month, which goes to not a particular project, but rather to a concept and a whole body of work by the Greenhouse Project, which has built some 359 homes in 32 states over the past 17 years. It's a not-for-profit organization which coordinates the building of small-scale, self-contained homes in partnership with developers, care providers, and advocates looking to, as they put it, disrupt the norm. And they do this on the basis of evidence-based experience and research. This is the opposite approach to the important and elegant concierge-manned senior living projects from Sunrise that I discussed with John Walker a few minutes ago. And it represents an alternative answer to the question of what size a home should be. You'll find links to these initiatives on the podcast page at thirdage.design. Our Innovation Spotlight focuses on perhaps the best known and certainly the largest U.S. home improvement retailer, Home Depot. Within the last year, they began an independent living program in partnership with National Seating and Mobility, or NSM, offering in-home consultations and equipment installation. In the past, you used to have to go to your local home medical equipment supplier and start asking lots of questions, or, and this is important, hire a certified aging in place specialist, which will in fact be the topic of next month's podcast. Anyway, the Home Depot consultations are free and they run for somewhere between 45 to 90 minutes, depending on need. They began trials in New Jersey and Missouri and then expanded nationwide during the pandemic, which is interesting. And it's a really innovative initiative which I think should be considered for application in other countries as well. So if you're US-based, you can find links to this on the podcast page of thirdage.design, or if you'd like to see what they're doing and try to apply it elsewhere, um, that's a good place to look as well. Let's take a quick look then at our international TAD events calendar to wrap things up. The American Healthcare Association and National Center for Assisted Living have postponed their convention and expo to October the 10th to the 13th at the Gaylor National Resort and Convention Center in Washington, D.C. They did that so it can be a safe in-person event. The 10th Anniversary Care and Retirement Living Conference is scheduled to take place in Covent Garden, London, England on the 24th of November. And the 2021 Conference on Construction and Operation of Senior Nursing Facilities will take place in Munich 
from the 9th to the 10th of December. And if the website is anything to go by, a working knowledge of German will be very, very helpful. You'll find more on the events page at thirdage.design. A special thank you to my guest, John Walker of Sunrise Senior Living. To our producer, Mike Scales, to Valerie Adler of The Right Website, Peter Thorne, who composed our theme music and is playing the piano with Mary Blanchard on flute, and finally, to you for being part of a community who believes that we can design better together. I'm Laurie Pinkerton Rowley, and I do hope you'll join me for the next one. Thank you.